Thank you for tuning in. Do you seek greater meaning and purpose in your work? Do you dream of using your skills and talents to truly impact the lives of others and even entire communities on a human level? If so, or if you just want to be inspired by someone making a real difference, this episode is for you. I have become a fan of Avery Bang and Bridges to Prosperity over the years because of both their mission and results. In this episode, we start off talking about the power of engaging and inspiring students early by sharing with them the essential value and beauty of engineering and architecture and the power of connecting our work to people as practitioners. We also get into the details of how Bridges to Prosperity works and the opportunities we have as professionals, teams, and organizations to get involved. Bridges to Prosperity is a top-notch organization solving real and urgent problems and leveraging both innovative technology and innovative community development to do so. Their work creates immediate and generational impact and has been verified. I am thrilled that Avery joined us as this is the second of a series of episodes planned to highlight ways we can achieve greater personal and corporate impact by stepping into some of the really big problems we as AEC professionals are uniquely skilled and positioned to solve. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Avery Bang, President and CEO of Bridges to Prosperity, and we'll be talking about impacting lives and communities through connection. Welcome to the podcast, Avery. Thanks. Excited to be here. Great. Well, I'm very excited about this, and I've been a fan for years and seen your TED Talks and presentations of your work, and I've been impressed from both an AE practitioner and an organizational development perspective. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about Bridges to Prosperity, but before we begin, can you share a little bit about you, your background, and what brought you to where you are today as president and CEO of Bridges to Prosperity? Yeah, my pleasure, Pete. Um, I like to say that I was one of the lucky few uh, that grew up in a family where engineering was really uh, core and center to our daily conversations. So my, my dad's a civil engineer and um, Iowa City, Iowa, and we would go on family holidays. And as opposed to, you know, maybe going somewhere interesting like Disney World or, you know, I don't know, Branson, Missouri, uh, we would end up, you know, at bridge sites and we would be crawling down the abutments and looking back up underneath the underbelly of what most people would just drive by and like largely go unnoticed. That was like the, the point of our trip. And, and you know, so I think it, I grew up in an environment where like how do you create and build and design the world around you was a everyday part of the conversation. And I think when it was, you know, that time to figure out what is it that I want to do, it was a quite a natural, um, you know, decision to go into study engineering as an undergrad. Um, so I went and actually played soccer at the University of Iowa, go Hawks, um, and was able to study civil engineering. I have this bit of a like weird creative bent, which I also I uh, was like, maybe I should be an artist. So I went and did a studio art second degree, which had almost no overlap. And um, like the long and the short of it, or like I ended up kind of just having the sense of, even though I'm quite good at engineering, and even though I find myself quite drawn to the artists, um, what is it that I'm going to do with my life? And so I moved to Fiji, I know, very random, and ended up kind of stumbling into this issue of, bridges being needed in the world. Um, and that was almost 15 years ago. So I haven't looked back. So when, so a couple of things there. Um, so exposed to engineering as a young person, I mean, how important do you think that is today? I know there's a lot, there's ACE programs, there's a lot of work to get STEM into, you know, elementary schools and junior high. I mean, do you think that's a critical element to people engaging early in engineering? 
Absolutely. I, I think that in general, you can't be what you don't see. And, you know, even though we are the 1% of the population that are functionally responsible for the health and well-being um, for all of society, it's just not a really well-known uh, or at least celebrated profession, I think, in, in common culture, at least at this particular point. And so if, if you aren't surrounded by media really glorifying the importance of engineering, then I think the second, you know, and most obvious way is to see people who, who do this good work and see that you know, see their own humanity and, and see them um, light up at the opportunity to get to do this great, interesting work. Right. And, and certainly reaching out and sharing what we do as an industry. I think once people realize that basically the built world around us is designed by engineers and architects and, you know, it really makes society flourish. It, it, it's, it's really exciting. But I think as engineers and architects, we're really understated with the impact that we have. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think obviously the intersection of the art and the engineering, I fancied myself a possible future architect at one point, but I remember talking to people and they're like, well, why? Like, why would you want to design a building? You know, it's like, why would you not want to design a building? You know, whether you're coming at that from the more creative or more technical angle. Um, to me, it always sounded really quite interesting, but it's not everyone's cup of tea, I guess. Right. Well, also quite interesting. How and well, when and how did you find yourself in Fiji? Well, you know, it's like that quintessential quarter life crisis moment when you're 20 nothing and like looking for purpose. I think this might be a slightly dating myself as a millennial, but I really didn't have a clear identity of how I was going to go into a typical consulting role and feel fulfilled. And, you know, I did the typical, you know, you go and have your practicums and your summer internships. And I'm sitting here in a cubicle in my calculator, my, you know, my computer. And, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect, I think, for me at that point where I knew I was quite good at it and intellectually interested in it, but I didn't have the connection to people. And there was no, well, the reason that we need to make sure that this design is checked in all of the different ways. And the reason that it's quite important that we have, you know, all these systems for, um, you know, going through the process of design to construction is because safety for people is at the very core. And the people part at that point was absent in the vocabulary of the folks around me. Um, and so Fiji was a little bit of a like, I'll go find my calling. And, uh, you know, at that point, I kind of thought maybe I needed a pivot. You know, it occurred to me, perhaps I could get into healthcare. I ended up volunteering with the Breast Cancer Foundation. Um, but, you know, all roads lead back to Rome in my world. But so it ended up being a finding of the bridges through that same organization. So, I mean, I, okay, I want to find out how you volunteer for an organization and then find out about bridges. And, but it's interesting, you just, talk, you just um, talked about, you know, a very important element that I'm working with a lot of leaders and firms on today. And it's, you know, in order to be successful and relevant and really attract and retain the best talent, we in Prosper, I mean, we really need to be good at four elements and I call them the four P's projects, profits, people, and purpose. And we're real good. Well, we're getting better at really highlighting our projects and how the impact we have on the world. And we're getting better at business and being able to generate profits that allow us to grow, which is a good thing be able to support organizations like Bridges to Prosperity. Um, but the people and the purpose part, I think we're on the early stages of the curve, investing more in talent development and connecting our work to people like the employees and the actual people that we're serving. And then the purpose element that that's just tie it all together. So it's interesting. I mean, you, you've lived that like that's the, and you are a targeted person, like someone with your drive and your entrepreneurism. I mean, you would be coveted with firms today and that's the element that you, you know, people and purpose. So to connect that through. So, but you're, so you're on Fiji and then how was this sort of connecting? How, how did bridges come back into view? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to have this empathy for people who live in a walking world until you live that experience. Um, and so the opportunity to, to volunteer at the Breast Cancer Foundation in Fiji was living that experience of walking everywhere. So I was walking to these communities to teach them about the importance of early breast cancer detection. And yet you'd get to the river and you'd have to make that decision. Do I want to take the risk today to go across, go across this river and the unknowingness that I can come back tonight. And so as you sit there, it was a very real experience. 
come across the river? Do we go today? Do we not? Next river? Do we go? Do we not? And, you know, I don't think it was obvious that the root cause of so many different problems were actually that basic isolation. At least at that time, it wasn't obvious, but it was like right in front of me that day, I couldn't do my job. Um, and it was, you know, after several months of this, that I eventually came across a community that had a very basic suspension pedestrian bridge. I'm sure there was some tourist, you know, some, some reason for it other than the core purpose that we have at Bridges to Prosperity. But it was just, I don't know, Pete, it was like that eureka moment. Not only can I go over there and reach these women, but you're seeing kids like run by you on their way to school. And you're imagining how these same women not only are being taught about preventative healthcare, but they're also accessing the only, you know, healthcare clinics, which are clearly on the more urban side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of felt like this equalizer for being born on the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, but perhaps in this case was a river. So. Right. Right. And, and so, so you, you have that, so you, eventually you come back from Fiji and then what do you, what do you do? What do you do with that passion <laughs> and that epiphany? Yeah. You know, persistence might be your fifth, P you could add to that little thing. Um, I, I think I didn't know what the word no really meant at that particular point. So, you know, I did what every young person does when you have a decent idea as you Google, like who does this? Like who builds pedestrian bridges in developing countries and actually came back with, you know, two main hits. And, and this time in like back in 2005, I think 2004, you know, you still had those old AOL scrolling sites. So the first one was like a really legit development organization, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent a year, very professional, very clear. The second one was a scrolling AOL site, or, you know, I don't know what the technical term is. At the bottom is a phone number and the photo of this guy named Ken France. And it, it, he, I think he's wearing his shirt from his Rotary Club because uh, he's a Rotarian. He'd created this organization, Bridges to Prosperity, uh, with the intention of being able to partner with Rotary Clubs. And, uh, you know, so I call him up. I'm like, Ken, uh, I'm Avery. I'm an engineering student. I didn't, like, mention I have no credentials or any real skills. I just, like, went with the engineering thing. And, you know, kind of talked him into, like, I'd like to build a bridge with you. And at that point in time, I think it was a, you know, skeleton of an organization. Um, you know, he did what he could to spend the time he could, but didn't have any employee payroll or, you know, there was nothing really behind, um, like how would you involve students, for example. So he very quickly, smartly said, no, click. And, you know, end up calling again with a perhaps a little more well thought out. Hey, I've got these other friends. I think I could do this through my university. Also an astute businessman still is like, you're crazy kid, click. So it was like the third time of that persistent, like, okay, Ken, I'm going to raise the money it would take to build the bridge. I've convinced my University of Iowa a faculty to allow us to do this for an honors project. Um, there's no risk on you, uh, but I, I, I'm confident that we could actually pull this off if you, if you allowed us to do it. And I think at that point, he was just tired of taking my phone calls. <laughs> so you know, down to Peru, we went. And, and had uh, he built bridges before or is his organization built bridges so that they had been some? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, he built, um, he's building like two or three bridges per year, all through Rotary. Um, really, a, you know, great idea uh, of creating a charitable organization that could focus on bridges by working through all sorts of different Rotary clubs. Um, but I kind of used the angle of there was no engineering technical expertise in-house at that point. Could I come in and, as these engineering students, you know, ostensibly help create some sort of standard process and design? And I thought at that point I would, you know, go back into the real world, get a real, real big person job and uh, didn't. <laughs> so, well, you find, so there's Peru. So it's, was Peru on their radar through like a rotary club or did you find this site in Peru that needed to be bridged? Yeah, no, they, they definitely had a presence in Peru. They'd already just signed a Rotary grant, if my memory serves me. Um, and he was working with a woman named uh, Zoe at the time, who would, uh, was a consultant that came in and actually had done a lot of work with him also in Ethiopia before that. So I got in touch with Zoe, and we're now dear friends, like one of my best friends in the world. So if she listens to this, hi, Zoe. But, you know, I remember we'd, we flew down to Peru, and we met her in um, – essentially in the Starbucks in, in the capital city of Lima. And, you know, in the course of an hour, she kind of is like, 
well, here's the names of these places. Here's how you're going to need to fly to Cusco. You're going to need to get to this small town called Santo Tomas. There'll be a guy there named Armando. He's going to take you from there into a truck, which from there you're going to have to walk like four hours. But I hear there's a site that's going to need to be surveyed. And, oh, by the way, if you decide you want to do this, you're going to have to figure out how to import things like cables. And the list was so overwhelming and so, like, didn't even know where to start. I remember just, like, kind of staring blankly at her. I'm like, okay, see you later. And off we went. Um, I assure you at this point, the organization does not run in that way whatsoever. But it was really a, an experience of kind of being thrown into the sharks, so to speak, and you know, see you could float. And you show, you made that happen. You, and, and I know that one of your TED Talks, you talk about that experience of, of going through and figuring it out, like as an engineer. And I know that, you know, you've, continued on with the organization and developed standard designs. And you even went to graduate school as a way to help develop designs for these types of projects. Yeah. You did your homework, my friend. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, done, I did this bridge in Peru and, um, you know, started applying to the Peace Corps, put some applications in uh, to typical consulting firms. And then I started thinking, well, maybe graduate school. I don't know. Who knows? And it started really dawning on me, well, there was no bridge standard at Bridges to Prosperity. There was like, let's kind of figure out how big the hole is and work off this other organization's drawing set, which we had no engineering calculations behind, which is always a bit of a risk, right? And I was like, well, what if I, you know, delayed the real world and I went to graduate school? Um, where would I want to go? What would I do? Well, I definitely do something for bridges or I'm not going to do it at all. Like I don't need to go just get another letter behind my name. I'm not really motivated in that particular way. And so I um, searched out Bernard Amade, who is a national Academy of engineering uh, member and um, founder of uh, the Mortensen center for engineering for developing communities, also the founder of engineers without borders. And he had really created this, um, groundswell of development engineers here at the University of Colorado Boulder, which continues to this day to be one of the top institutions in the world producing uh, this kind of engineering thought leadership. And, um, you know, I, I remember coming on a, a visit and I was like, I do this bridge thing. I think I want to write my, you know, I want to study this and somehow make a standard out of my thesis. And it was another one of those persistence moments. Like I have these like series of mentoring men who first say no many times and then end up like being like, gosh, who is this girl? So I'll, I'll skip that drama, but eventually convinced Bernard that he should let me spend a couple of years mainly overseas when not taking classes uh, so I could do this work with Bridges to Prosperity. Well, that, I mean, that, all right, that's incredible. So my research didn't uncover that piece, but, but to, you know, so if you fast forward, I don't know, a dozen years or 10 years, I mean, so like you and your team, supporters and volunteers have literally like changed lives, changed communities, changed regions, and now you're changing countries for the better. And I want to get into like a big project you have planned now for Rwanda. And, and that's not an overstatement. I mean, you've changed lives and it's going to change generations uh, for people in these communities. And I just, you know, I, that again, that's not an overstatement at all, but I mean, how do Today, how does Bridges to Prosperity work? Can you walk us through a project and, and, you know, really how do organizations and individuals get involved with supporting your mission? Because, I mean, if my research was correct, I mean, you've designed 300 bridges in more than 20 countries to date over the last 10, 12 years and, and affecting the lives of a million people. I mean, is that true? And again, can you then get into how do people get involved and help support this and connect communities? So many questions in there, Pete. Um, yeah, I know. Well, yes, it's true. Not only do we design them, we've built them critically. So uh, yeah, I think, you know, starting from the very top today, we think it's really um, the role of an organization to be a convener. So we bring governments, I'm just going to use Rwanda as an example. Uh, but we like partner with the government, government of Rwanda to say, you know, where are your communities isolated? Where are kids not seasonally coming to school? Where are people not coming to markets predictably? Where are healthcare clinics having underrepresentation of, you know, maybe, you know, 
some months there seems to be drops in, in attendance and that sort of thing. And you know, in partnership with the government identifying these pockets of isolated communities, um, they put together a portfolio of over, I think, 1,600 locations where we partnered in going out and surveying and assessing the number of people that were isolated, how often were they isolated, where are they isolated from, and came down with like a, we'll call it like the hit list of the 350-odd most important high-impact projects that the government said, hey, we'll, we'll co-finance this with you, partners. 60%, if you guys bring it to the table, we'll bring 40. In the future, we'd like to increase that, but, you know, that doesn't hurt when the government brings in a lot of the resource. And, and then from, from there is really where the other part of the, the triangle comes in is our partnership with the industry. And we work um, with contractors, engineering firms, and architecture firms around the world to bring in the talent and treasure that it takes to really you know, bridge the gap, literally, of um, the philanthropic part of what we need to do is, uh, in, in the bridge building, as well as to bring in the technical expertise to build capacity. So I could just use a great example of um, We've got a long-standing relationship with Alfred Beatty, for example, and every year they're sending 10 people to come help build a bridge with us in one of our program countries. And those 10 people are selected out of a group of several hundred company-wide that are saying, I want to have something that lines up with my sense of purpose. And that is being able to give back to the world in a more immediate and tangible way than I know my work is doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but it just might not be as immediate and, ta and tangible. And those hundred, several hundred people, many of them will apply year after year after year until they finally get selected. And once you get you know, chosen and you head down to Bolivia or Rwanda or Uganda, you know, the, the, not only is it deeply important for my staff, is how do you really build a culture of safety if you can't have someone model that for you? And how do you really start to understand the critical design thinking of engineering, um, you know, coming from different levels of accreditation of engineering programs? whether you're hiring a Rwandan engineer from a vocational school or a four-year program, or even bringing someone in you know, from Europe or the US. Um, there's different ways that we look at problems and it's a very much a um, both sides learn from that different level of experience and education. And um, those 10 people will work with my staff in the local community to build a bridge in 10 days. So it's a nice, you know, nice punchy, 10 people, 10 days, you'll build a bridge and you're going to you know, not only change the lives of thousands of people there, but those folks that travel are forever changed. And it's a, it's a pretty cool little triad. So you, three. so, okay, well, there's, um, so you're, but you're doing groundwork. So you're working with local governments and you're figuring out, okay, there's an isolated community and there's probably opportunities or you've assessed the opportunities to get, you know, kids connected to education, families connected to healthcare and businesses, farmers connected to commerce. And so you, there, there's been an assessment done, a feasibility assessment done that says there's, um, there's value here to connecting that. And you've, you follow through in this asset-based community development because you're really working with the local community and the greater governments. So there's all this legwork that happens. And so you said 10 people, 10 days, is that, it, what's the mixture of your staff versus local talent and then talent that's brought in from volunteers? Yeah, Pete, I appreciate that. We have, you know, over 50 people on payroll in Rwanda, most of whom are Rwandese, year round working on working with governments to prioritize projects, to get those into budgets, to help with procurement, to make sure that we've got the quality assurance process in, in place and that all the materials are ready to go. Um, we actually start working with the community about 90 days out. It's a 90-day construction schedule in broad strokes. And the community members who are the ones that are going to use that bridge, whose kids are going to benefit, whose grandkids will benefit, um, the ones digging holes and being taught how to safely bench excavations, they're the ones that are bending rebar and learning how to safely and correctly do, you know, water-cement ratios to be able to, you know, make correctly... Um, poured foundations. Those folks are working night and day. Uh, about 20 people is probably a good average. Not at night, all day, <laughs> but many, many hard labor hours. Um, and we would have anywhere from one to three staff that would be trained always from the region. So not likely the capital city, but someone 
that may have family a few hours away that's been trained by us and a lot of times selected from these very communities where they were an all-star in their project. So we were like, hey, let's train them to be like one of the kind of training masons. And they'll be getting everything that substructure completes. So everything underground that you might not see at the final product, including anchorages, including foundations for towers, um, including most of the prep work uh, that would be required for the superstructure as well. And then when this team of uh, 10 folks arrive from our partner companies, we would at Bridges Prosperity probably have about four to five of our teammates there, some translation, some engineering, some logistics. Uh, but those 20 odd local community members will continue to be there every day through the completion. And a big part of the exchange is that, I mean, Pete, I can throw you in some you know, fall protection and I can quickly explain how to safely use a power drill and how to you know, safely climb up scaffolding and off we go. Um, but to be sure that you can build that capacity with locals who are going to use this every day and also going to have to maintain, especially things like the deck, that's a whole nother level of capacity building. And so these teams that come in have an, you know, a kind of a scope of work, not only to leave the community with that you know, asset in place, um, but to make sure that those local community members really understand how to make sure that, that continues to serve the population for decades to come. Which is, you're not only providing relief in terms of a bridge and being able to allow things to happen, but you're really providing the long-term development. And, and that's the best forum of, because once that bridge is built, you really don't need to go back. If, if you've done everything in your, what you want to do, what your mission is, you could go back and say hi and, you know, be able to connect with people again, but it won't be because this bridge has fallen out of repair or nobody understands what went into it. So, I mean, I think that's tremendous development work, but that's next level thinking. And that's, that's really, that's encouraging. Yeah. And it, it, I, I know that there's probably some, you know, obviously good critical thinkers on your, in your audience. There is a lot of complexity behind that, how we actually do go do inspections, how we actually work with the government to make sure that things are budgeted for replacement, how materials are selected for life cycle cost. But compared to things like water, where there's so many little parts of a pump that can go wrong, little tiny valve, little tiny handle problem. You know, there's a good reason why so many water projects fail so quickly, as I know you've spent some time in Latin America and seen plenty of probably great projects and ones that, um, you know, worked for a little while and went south. Uh, bridges for what we've been able to design um, with a tremendous amount of redundancy and, and frankly thinking through durability as a predominant design constraint. Um, easily have 30-year lifespans as long as pretty basic uh, maintenance is monitored. So All right. it's really interesting. Now, how can, you mentioned working with firms and, and them having some sort of a, a process to select and, and offer this experience. I mean, can um, smaller firms, a firm in San Antonio and a firm in Boise, Idaho, I mean, are there firms that can get connected and individuals who just work and say, I, this is what I want to spend my vacation. I want to connect with Avery and I want to get involved. Do you have programs for that? It's a good question. You know, I think what we're really great at is teams because it's a, you know, just strictly thinking through a business perspective, like a lot of your, your listeners, it takes me about the same amount of prep time to take one person as it does 10. So doing a preparatory call around logistics and around your site and safety plan, around your communication. Like I'm gonna to have to do that whether it's one traveler or 10. And frankly, also the partner organizations have to sponsor the bridge. So if I have the responsibility of having one individual do that, it's quite heavy lift as opposed to a team of folks. Um, so what our sweet spot is companies that are able to send a team or a half a team. So we've got like, this huge new burgeoning, um, you know, I was going to call it a, a tidal wave in the industry where people and companies are coming back year after year after year. Uh, we have like, I think 94% retain uh, companies that do it with us come back again. But instead of coming back this year with only their team, they're partnering and every year they're getting a new partner. So, you know, a great example, um, it's like the trailer brothers, they, when they partner, they're looking for, can we work with T.Y. Lynn this year? Can we work with Arup next year? And, you know, American Bridge is a contractor can, um, the tap and Z was like, could we work with Lou Berger before, you know, there was a, you know, merger and acquisition there. And, you know, can we partner with our preferred design firm with IBT? So you start to get these small and large companies who have a lot of reason to relate 
maybe they're on a pursuit together. Maybe they intend to be on a project together or where they are right now. And there is this little, you know, microcosm of a, of a you know, project life cycle that you can thoughtfully design and send people around um, saying, I want them to really learn what it's like to work together. And um, that's become a really favorite of a lot of different companies. So whether it's a full team or half a team, um, we also have a few projects a year where we'll say, hey, if you've got one or two folks, we'll put you into a group together. Um, but uh, kind of in the team environment as opposed to solo. Right. Well, and that's a benefit, too, from a team building perspective. And, and so, I mean, I think that's a great opportunity. I do want to talk, I mean, you, so as a, again, an organizational development perspective and someone who really cares that the work matters and makes a difference. So you commissioned a longitudinal study with, with Notre Dame, I believe, just to really impact your work. I mean, the, the, the good and the opportunities to enhance me. Can you share about that study and what the results were of your work? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of vulnerability as a leader in asking someone to come in from the outside to opine on, you know, certainly successes, but more likely the failures. And I think that that could be said about any number of you know, externalities, whether it's bringing management consultants or what have you. Um, but we decided that we wanted to have, you know, totally third party economists give us a sense of really what is the impact of a bridge. And, you know, I remember the conversation being like, well, what if they find it's nothing? Does that mean we stop business? And you, we had to really be able to orient and, and, you know, have a values aligned conversation as a team. That, like, that means that we would dramatically change how we think about our work. Perhaps, changing how we select sites, perhaps even thinking if this is the best way to spend money at all, especially because it is donor funds. Um, and so this, this longitudinal study um, essentially means that over multiple years, over multiple different seasons of, of um, flood, rainy seasons, we would build bridges in X number of communities and there would be Y number of communities that would not have a bridge, so they'd be control. And then in order to be able to capture attribution, of effect, you'd be able to track all of these households and communities with a bridge and also be able to track those without. And what was really unpredicted was just how significant the economic returns were for this, these communities with a bridge in comparison without. Um, there's like two main buckets that the economists found. Uh, the first I thought was fairly obvious. You have a bridge, so therefore people get more labor wage. So in most of these locations are going to go get day wages from the tobacco farm or from the farm down the street that's slightly bigger. They're going to pick tea. So if it's raining and the rivers are high 30% of the time, it was intuitive. To me, it was intuitive that you're going to have more labor earnings. But what was not intuitive and was in fact much more significant in terms of economic gains for community members was that um, farmers ended up being able to evaluate risk very differently when they had a bridge. So, you know, imagine Pete, you're a, you're a farmer and you're thinking like, how do I want to buy seeds or how much land do I want to plant? When am I going to you know, buy and sell my goods in market? If you don't have certainty that you can get to that market, you're really having to be conservative on every single one of those steps. And so what the researchers found was that when you had a bridge, farmers bought more seeds, fertilizers. If they had more land, they planted it. Critically, they no longer stored surplus to feed their families in the time of crisis because they knew predictably they could get to a market. They were able to sell the, um, time the sale of their goods. Farmer profitability on average went up 75% per household. And I mean, like as an Iowan, you know, that comes from a long lineage of farmers, if I could tell my granddad that there's going to be a, anything would increase profitability 75%, you know, like I, I, I'd be the next, you know, governor of Iowa. But, the, you know, the reality is it was just a aha moment of validating that this is important work, that this is not only important, but this is time critical. Imagining all of the communities that are not currently being able to live up their full potential because they're not even commercially active. Forget the lack of education. Forget, you know, the lack of health care. It's just even principally they're not connected to the local economy. We have to solve that problem. Um, and that really like catalyzed our next phase of growth. And that's, I mean, that, that's number one, phenomenal. And number two, it does bring in urgency. So no matter how busy we are or how, you know, consumed we are today, there's, I, I, I don't know what the research was, was there a billion people who aren't connected 
that yeah. could be connected and be able to have this sort of return on investment? And, and yeah. did the, was this the study that I know I heard you speak on, there was like a five times or five times the ROI in year one alone on some of the bridges. So I mean, it's, it's just an immediate impact. So if we can connect it, the impact starts today. Today and it continues. So, you know, for those, those financing nerds out there, you start to think about how, you know, or policy wonks, what, at what threshold of internal rate of return or how much like economic development is required to do an infrastructure project? You know, in the United States, I don't even want to quote it. I'm sure your listenership would have that, but let's call it like five, 7% would be a really good in like annual economic growth for an investment. So if it takes 30 years to pay off an infrastructure project, that oftentimes is fantastic. In the developing world context, and specifically with Bridges to Prosperity, in Nicaragua, where we had really, really low population density, so if you could kind of imagine that means fewer people to help with the same cost of the bridge, there was like um, 20% per annum rate of return. In Rwanda, where you have many thousands of people per bridge, it's paying for itself in less than two years in almost every population that we work in. So not only is the bridge kind of creating enough economic prosperity in those first two years, but the 30 year lifespan, you kind of start to think about what is the net present value of all of those future earnings. Governments cannot afford not to do this and to do it now. Right. And that, and that's a, a significant project you have. I mean, anything else to share on the, well, actually before you, I, I do want to talk about Rwanda and, and because that's a major, um, well, I, I assume it's a major change or partnership, next level partnership. But one thing too, you use technology with some of the bridges. I mean, you have counters. So as part of the study or as part of your normal day to day, like you're actually measuring the use of the bridges. Is that true? It's not on 100% of our projects, but yeah, it's actually a partnership with the University of Colorado and a really cool company called SweetSense, um, where they developed a series of different kinds of sensors where they effectively could track when people go across the bridge. Um, so you can imagine it's a little laser beam that every time someone walks across it clicks. Or we've also tried pressure transducers where when you step on it or a temperature thermometer, which can capture people moving by, videos for the same sort of reason. Um, but what's really cool about SweetSense is they take that data and they translate it into binary ones and zeros, send a text message in through a SIM card up into the cloud because it's connected to the cell network. And that gives us on a computer in as real time as you really want it, how many people are crossing today and at what times. And so it was really cool when we first prototyped it in Guatemala, we were able to see that peaks at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. could be another data source of why kids are or are not going to school. So like, oh, look, we're having huge traffic peaks at these hours. It's not enough to say concretely they're definitely going to school, but when you go and couple that with school attendance records, it's a really great proxy to give the organization more operational information that's leading us to believe that we're making the right decisions. And critically, Pete, also when we're not. So if we build infrastructure and believe that we're connecting people to markets, and then we don't see any change of you know, of traffic behavior between Friday and a Sunday, when Friday is the market, then it really strikes a question of, did we place that infrastructure in the way that we thought we should? If there's not any more people using it on market day. Um, so it's just like that kind of, you know, um, evidence-based decision-making and data-driven decision-making has really um, driven a lot of the sensor work. And in Rwanda, we are actually doing that at a much larger scale. So we can start to tease out other kinds of, um, evidence that might inform our work in the future. So because of your data and because of the confidence of the impact that you're making, is, is that part of what brought you to, you know what, let's scale this organization up. Let's see if not only we can change this community and the, this region with a series of bridges, but let's see if we can positively impact a country. And we're going to talk to the government of Rwanda. Like, is it because you know the product that you're producing has this tangible event. I mean, what was the circumstance to say, let's go bigger and affect more people? I mean, to be really honest, Pete, like I think for a long time, I kept being like, well, we figured the technical problem out. Why is this not getting built? And it was actually a big strategic conundrum. I think at the organization, we, we had a fairly flat um, you know, output of bridges year over for uh, three or four years. And it, we kept talking about like, what really is the constraint? Like, is it, 
the bridge design is standardized. We've trained the engineers, but yet these districts who are saying that they have 50 bridges that they need are only putting one or two a year in the budget. Like what's going on? And it really became, you know, a kind of a crisis of identity of like, now that we're the technical expert, and this is very clear that we can do these bridges, what is the constraint? It must not be technical, it must be financial. And so we ended up pursuing, you know, a pretty big organizational uh, shift to understand how could we move from one bridge at a time and every year going to a district or a state government rather and saying, hey, I know you need 50, but can you budget for one? Well, I mean, come on, Pete, 50 years, we're still going to be building these basic bridges in these tiny little remote areas. And think about all of the lives that are going to be lost, all of the lost opportunity, all of the, you know, just the kind of, like, the, the injustice of that just didn't make sense. So if you could take all those tiny little projects, put them into a bundle, and take them up into the, you know, to the national government where the national government actually has a lot more agency, because not only is there a tax base, although not as significant as you'd find here, but there's also critically relationships with big aid, whether it's a world bank or the bilaterals, multinationals. And so they can make the decision to put more money into rural infrastructure in a way that a mayor or a governor certainly cannot. So our big idea was like, if it's not a technical problem, it's a financing one. And if we can go and aggregate a portfolio of projects into a pool that effectively could be at a transaction size, that's large enough for the federal government to invest and the bilateral aid agencies behind them, then we could solve this problem in a meaningful timescale. And what better place to try that out than Rwanda? So there we are. Right. And into the five-year program. And, and that, is that, it, are, can, can organizations get, and firms and organizations get involved with you differently because of Rwanda or is it the same model? Yeah, it's, it's actually really changed our ability to take on partners. Um, so when we were really limited in how the partner governments could invest, we would have a long you know, list of companies that say, hey, we want to build bridges with you. And we're like, great, we've got a slot two years out. And, you know, to their credit, I think especially the AEC industry has been really generous. We've been something of a darling child uh, over the last few years. People would wait and they say, okay, I've got my slot in two years. Uh, happy to do that. But I think what was the mismatch is that there was a huge demand and there wasn't enough supply. And so by being able to work with the government of Rwanda to be able to build out this capacity for their, gov for their people, it also builds a supply for us of projects where we can bring in um, strategically partnerships that we really want to and before we had to wait quite a long time to make possible. Well, I mean, what a great win-win opportunity. And I, um, I want to be respectful of your time. I mean, but I, I, and I want to talk about, you're doing some work in your local community of Denver to help connect communities, even here close to home. And I do, but, um, you know, as I do that, I mean, how, are, is your drive different today than it was in that first bridge in Peru or as a, as a, as a young engineering student <laughs> child? I mean, it, are, are you driven by the same things or is your, is your drive shifted? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think, I think as life circumstance changes and your perspective evolves, I, I think that it's impossible to say it's the same 15 years over, but you know, the very core base of why I do what I do is at the very human level. For in Peru, it was for, you know, a small boy that I became particularly attached to and imagining him no longer having to walk across braided reeds to be able to maybe get to school and then being that maybe only being nine months a year because three months he wasn't even allowed to try. And that's still today. I'm still going to communities and still seeing these bridges open and still seeing that small child. And, you know, especially as a soccer player, I usually have a soccer ball on, on foot. And they're like, who is this Mizungu juggling a soccer ball in the middle of the field? And it's quite a curious sight. And it's still the way that I make friends with the kids in the community is around this. Um, oh, sorry. My dog just dropped something. Um, you know, it's about bringing that soccer ball and being human and seeing that kid. But I, I think that my reality is I used to really believe that I personally was making a big difference. And today I have a very strong conviction that it takes a village. I myself am doing very little other than just bringing together resources and people and my team are far more capable and effective than I am in any area of the organization that we could talk about. Uh, and the partners that bring their skills, expertise and, you know, financing to the projects 
they're the ones that really need to be celebrated as do the governments that are prioritizing this. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's fine to be 20 and naively believe in this altruistic sense of I'm going to save the world. Uh, but I think now at 35, I'm probably in an evolution that will be quite different by 50, but I think it, it's really more about how can we move the needle in these rural communities and how can we provide a best in class experience um, for the AEC industry in a way that we can attract the talent that's going to be necessary, not only to solve this big global crisis, but frankly, the big, you know, the big challenges of the decades and uh, generations to come. Well, I mean, you've just described the power of a good leader and an individual's evolution of leadership. I mean, so that, I mean, that, that's phenomenal. And, and to be Very about generous. the team and really, you know, supporting what the team can do. Um, and I think that's great. So can you share a little bit about um, your passion for also and the work you're doing connecting some communities that are local communities in ways that can help them thrive? You know, like I, I'm a bit of a jogger. I won't say runner. That would be very generous of me. So I'm a jogger, right? And uh, one of my jogging paths here in Denver, Colorado is down by the South Platte. And um, there's a, in an area where, frankly, you know, as good infrastructure projects do, uh, big interstates came in and just totally cut communities in, in, into little slivers uh, when they were first built, you know, decades and decades ago. And these little pocketed communities are just on the other side of that river. I can see Globeville. I can see Elyria Swansea. I can see areas that are, you know, in a very different level of economic prosperity than just in sight distance from my own. And there's some irony to that in my worldview of spending all of my days and weeks and months thinking about isolated communities in rural Rwanda or, you know, pockets of Bolivia. And then to hear in my morning jog just down the road from me, I have the same exact circumstance where people are disconnected from the light rail that's come into town. How are you going to get there if you're going to have to walk a mile out of your way and walk on a busy vehicle bridge without a really good side area? Um, and so one of the projects that, you know, I kind of came in as more of a side interest was how can we build sustainable cost-effective pedestrian infrastructure and get that procured here in the city of Denver that would serve some of those currently isolated pockets of population. So there is a project not so far from our office in my house that uh, is in some stage of development. We are not the designer, we're not the owner, so it's more tangential to our core work. But, but for all those engineers and planners and transportation folks and firms who are serving communities today. I mean, it's a lesson to look at where is some of the isolation, whether it be a, a bus route or a subway train or a light, you know, subway route or a light trail uh, train um, connection, like what, where might there be pockets of isolation that in our designing, whether it be pedestrian ways or bike ways that we can really think about connecting all little neighborhoods that might be isolated. And I think it's, I mean, it just shows it, it's that, that caring for people and wanting them connect, to connect them um, and as communities that will thrive through that. I, I just, I thought that was phenomenal because I, you know, the work away, but you know, it's also in my neighborhood. Yeah. Well, you know, to definitely not take credit where it's not, not on me. It was that, that had been in the plans for decades, but the reality of like certain, I mean, this is getting a little technical and annoying, but if the span length was such that you have to have mid-span piers. So if you could kind of imagine, you know, if you've got a 260 foot wide river and, you know, the obvious, you know, more traditional simple span structure that you would put over typical trails, those are limited in span length or they become prohibitively expensive. And so I think the big conundrum was it hadn't moved forward because A, it's in a floodplain. So mid-span piers were going to, I mean, just never, maybe they could make a cut, but you're talking about a whole lot of additional work and cost um, or you know just wasn't getting built kept getting kicked getting kicked back and so one of the things that I think we brought to the table was just the have we thought about a cable supported structure I think a lot of times those are only seen as as one-offs and as things that are you know the signature project for a city or something that is going to require 10 million dollars to do this pedestrian bridge and we brought we elevated this idea that there's actually some lessons that can be learned from our work over in developing countries that might be prudent to be adopted here in the US as well. So it was definitely not our plans. It's more of our technical innovation that I think was, it has been an interesting contribution. 
No, but it, it just shows that, you know, share, you know, a, a shared interest that like solutions can come from all kinds of different places if we totally. engage and, and we're included in solving the problem. So, I mean, as we close today, is there anything that you would like to add or share? I just, I think that, you know, there's this great opportunity as we look into, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg does a really good job of imagining a world where he is President Trump's age and he's, you know, not that older, much older than I am. And he thinks of himself in, you know, the year 2050, 2054. And what is the world going to be like? And like, if I were to be in a position of power by the time I'm at the end of my career and it's in the, you know, 2054, the challenges that engineers are going to be asked to solve are innumerable. Rapid urbanization, climate change, the realities of, you know, income inequality, those are all going to have to be challenges that are addressed by the technical population. And I think that something that I'm really committed to is how do we make sure that the right people are in the right seats at that point in time? And if we cannot make engineering, architecture, construction, a sector and a space where everyone feels like they have a home and we get more diversity, we get more women, we have more people of underrepresented minorities, not only into the profession, but staying, we will not solve those problems in 2054. And I think that that's a big part of what drives me in the day to day is how can we inspire that next generation uh, to come in and solve those big problems. Right. And well, and the current generations who are in the workforce, you know, who really want to have that, you know, greater impact day to day around the world and in their neighborhood, and they're employed, they're 20 something, they're 30 something, they're 40 something, they're 50 something, who want to have that impact and and leverage their skills, talents, assets and gifts. Um, But certainly also the generation coming up where it's just it's in the DNA. Absolutely. Make an impact. So well, how can folks get in touch with you to, um, to connect about projects or learn more about Bridges to Prosperity? Yeah, I mean, our website's a good place to search, uh, to start. Um, so bridges to prosperity.org and the two is a T-O. Um, and if there's interest and in, folks are interested in building a bridge with us, we've always got a lot of opportunities, especially now with Rwanda. So uh, shoot us an email, which is also available on our website. Well, excellent. I am so thankful that you were able to join us today and to share about you and what you're doing in the organization and the impact that it's having. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. All right. Take care. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.